My name is Dave. I'm glad to uh, be here. I'm one of the ministers on staff and uh, looking forward to being able to share with you. Uh, Dewan Alexander, I don't know, Dewan, are you in here? He's probably still working, getting ready for the uh, lunch that will follow. Uh, his comment to me this morning was, two Sundays in a row, is this a comeback tour? <laughs> it's short-lived. Brian will be back next week. But as, as I do want to call your attention to our bulletin, as you can see on the front of the bulletin, there is a schedule for this series that we're going through from the book of Jeremiah. And you see on the first uh, Sunday, that was aching to be called, and Brian introduced us to this series from Jeremiah. God's call on Jeremiah's life and how, how that call on Jeremiah impacts God's call on our life. Now, last week I talked about aching to know what is true, and the importance of knowing that which is true and being able to discern the difference between that which is true and, and that which is not true. And today we're going to be talking about aching to be touched by God. And as, as we talk about being touched by God, to help us focus on what it means to experience God's touch, we're going to take a look at Jeremiah chapter 18. It's the story of the potter's wheel. Um, and, and I want us to take a look at this picture. I want you to focus real intently with me uh, on this picture for a moment. And I want you to see some of the details that are in the picture. Just begin to, just begin to focus on that. I want you to, first, I want you to focus on the clay. Take a look at, at the clay. What seems to be happening to the clay? And then I want you to look at the hands. What are the hands doing? And, and what do you see in the hands themselves? And then I would like for you to imagine yourself in the position of the clay, and those hands are the hands of God. You're the clay. God's hands are around you. And what is there about the way that the potter is touching the clay that reminds you of your need for God's touch? What is there about the way that the potter is touching the clay that reminds you, God, I need your touch today? Now, with that image in mind, let's, let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18. And we're going to read the first six verses of Jeremiah chapter 18. Let's read. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. So are you in my hand, Israel. You still remember the, the image of the potter's wheel? 
Think about it that God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I have a message for you. And I want you to go down to the potter's house. If God were to say to you, I have a message for you. And I want you to go to a certain location to receive the message. Do you think you would go? Or do you think you would say, you know what, God, I'm really comfortable kicked back in my, in my chair. I've got a cup of coffee. Life's good. Go ahead and tell me now. We have no idea of knowing whether that was Jeremiah's thought. Likely not, because I don't think the lazy boy had been invented yet. God said, Jeremiah, I have a message for you. And to get the message, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And so he goes. Folks, we need to understand that when God is impressing upon you that he has a message for you and he says, this is where I want you to go, that if I really want to hear the message from God, then I've got to go there. I don't say to God, let me negotiate another location. We don't say to God, well, that sounds nice, but I would rather do it my way. In fact, that is the problem that Israel was having. God was saying to Jeremiah, I have a message for you for Israel. And to help you understand the message I have for Israel, I want you to go down to the potter's house. I want you to pay close attention to what you see the potter doing. And that's what Jeremiah does. That's what Jeremiah records. And then as he is observing the potter in action, and he sees him as he starts to form some type of vessel And then he changes his mind. Something is not right. And he changes his mind and he reshapes that vessel. And then God says, that, Jeremiah, did you see that? That's that's what I am going to do with Israel. That's what I'm going to do. You saw that part where the the potter changed and and he mashed the clay down and and he made something else. That's what I'm going to do with Israel. Jeremiah, I need you to hear this message. I need you to to have this image. This is what is going to take place. Now, you'll notice on your sermon notes page that are in the bulletin, and I'd encourage you to get that out if you haven't already. You'll notice that we're going to be looking at three questions. And the first question is, does God have the right to be God? Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands. That's God being God. Now, since we're together here in a church building, we know that the answer to that question ought to be, yes. Church, does God have the right to be God? Oh, yes. But since we spend more time out of this building than in this building, And since we know that there are times in our lives when our behavior reflects more of a no than a yes, that's why this message today is so important. It might be difficult for us at times because of circumstances in life to answer the question, yes, God, you have the right to be God. Because in our minds we're saying, God, if I were you, I'd do it this way. And I'd do it much faster I'd do it much less painfully. And I would, I would do it this way so that I enjoy it. Does God have the right to be God? 
We might say, yes, God, you have the right to be God, but we often will add that too, don't we? Does God have the right to be God? Take a look at that picture again. Take a look at that. Does God have the right to be God? What you know about what Jeremiah saw, what you know about what God said to Jeremiah, perhaps we want to reflect on the first time that you felt God shaping your life. And I'd like for you to think about that for a moment. When do you remember the first time that God placed his hand on you and began the shaping process? How did he do that? Did he do it through the influence, the witness of another person? Most likely. Did he begin to shape your life? Maybe you were at church camp. Maybe it was around the campfire. I loved my church camp growing up out in Oregon because my church camp out in Oregon was on the coast. And I could lie in my bunk at night and I could hear the waves crash against the shore. I was reminded of the majesty and the power of God. And God did some interesting shaping in those early years of my life. When I was a real little kid down in the Kaimishis, God shaped my life And I remember the time that I accepted Christ as my Savior and we walked down from the campground down to Little River. And I was baptized into Christ by my dad. And I have a picture of that. When did Christ begin to shape your life? Does God have the right to be God? And how did that shaping take place? Maybe as we've matured, we've experienced some of those times when the pressure is on. And God begins the shaping and the stretching process, and we don't like that. Maybe maybe there's never been a time when you said yes to God yet. And my prayer is that today, as we talk about God's touch, that you will have a sense of God's touch, and you will say, I want God to touch me and shape me the way He wants me to be. And from this day on, I want to follow God. I want Christ to be the Lord of my life. Maybe that's the touch. Maybe that is the prompting. Maybe you're at this point today for that very reason. Because God really does have the right to be God. Now, the second question. The second question is, what is the connection between choice and consequence? Again, if you have your Bibles, let's take a look. We're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 18. We'll start in the 7th verse. We'll read through the 10th verse. God says, If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And... If at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted and it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Jeremiah 
is getting the message from the Lord. God is saying, not only do I have the right to be God, God is also saying, there are consequences that go with choices. And any time we experience that, any time that we say that, we have people that really want to push back against that. I've mentioned previously that when I was in high school, I heard a guy described as someone who was determined to sow his wild oats, but who then prays for crop failure. I want to be able to do what I want to do, but I don't want any consequences. I certainly don't want anybody telling me about the consequences that may come. And I certainly don't want to be responsible for the consequences of my choices. It's not my fault. That, that kind of describe anybody that you know? Maybe that person that you see in the mirror on occasion? Has there ever been a time when I wanted to do what I wanted to do, but I certainly didn't want to experience the consequences of my choice? I think it is interesting. If you go back just one chapter, chapter 17 in Jeremiah, in chapter 17, God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. I mean, I really struggled with that verse. Deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And then he says, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Ouch. <laughs> I, 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 want, I want God to reward me according to what I intended to do. I want God to reward me based on, on the goodness and graciousness of his own love and heart. Now, he's promised us that he will, but he's also said there are consequences to choices that you make, and if you reject me, you will experience the consequences that come with that rejection. So let's take a look, continuing now in, back in Jeremiah 18, verses 11 and 12. Now, this is, this is God's message to Jeremiah. Now, therefore... Say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your action. Then notice, but they will reply, it's no use. We'll continue with our own plans we will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Wow. Think about that for a minute. Has there ever been a time in your life when you have said, God, listen, I am just going to do what I please. Now, we might not say that out loud in this room but we certainly have said it out loud in the privacy of our own home, in the workplace, in our relationships with other people. Mark Twain once said, man's the only animal that blushes or needs to. And while Israel did not blush at their own sinfulness, 
They rejoiced in their stubbornness. And I want you to notice that line, we will all. Stubbornness always demands a crowd. Stubbornness always demands a crowd. It takes a person who has strength to stand alone in front of the crowd. The people responded to Jeremiah, we will all. And the reason the emphasis there was, I don't want anybody to begin to break ranks. I don't want anybody to begin to follow. Because if one person follows, maybe another person will then follow. No, we all will stubbornly refuse God. In verses 13 to 17, God speaks of how unbelievable it is that Israel would behave as they are doing. He even speaks about how nature looks at that and says, I can't believe that those humans are doing that. He says, does does the mountain, the snow of the mountain, stop melting and flowing? No, it obeys my law. But you, Israel, He speaks of Israel's rejection of him and its embrace of everything else. Now, if you're here last Sunday, had a word for the day. Word for the day was conundrum. We've got another word for today. Today's word for the day is incongruous. When something or someone is incongruous, it means that they're out of keeping or out of place. Uh, inappropriate, unbecoming, not agreeing with what is usual or expected. The incongruity of God's people was unbelievable. It would result in Israel's destruction. Now, you'll notice that I included a couple of passages from Isaiah, and we're not going to have time to to delve into those passages, but I, I would love for you to jot those down and read them in light of what our discussion is today. Because Isaiah was addressing much the same thing. Now let's go go back to verse 18 of Jeremiah 18. And I want you to make sure I want to make sure you notice verse 18 because it is so descriptive. This was their response. They said, "Come, let us make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the words from the prophet, nor word from the prophets." So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. (laughs) That's incongruous to the behavior of a follower of God. But notice also that they now focus their attention on the messenger. I guess nobody ever told Israel, don't shoot the what? The messenger, don't shoot the messenger. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, Consider him who endured such oppositions from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's so important. It was important for Jeremiah. Jeremiah would lament in the book of Lamentations all of the things that happened. He was the weeping prophet. All of the things that he was encountering, all of the rejection, all of the persecution. And the people were saying, Let's attack Jeremiah. But notice what they recognized. They recognized that the teaching of the law and the priests will not cease. They recognized that counsel from wise will not stop. They recognized that the words from the prophets were going to keep coming. 
And yet they still resisted. God has spoken to us and he said, I am speaking to you. I want to protect you from the destruction that is coming. I want to save you from the wrath that is laid up in store. I am the only one who can save you from that. Please listen to the words of wisdom. Please listen to the words of the prophets. Please listen to the teaching. Now I want us to focus on the third question. And the third question is, how is God touching you? How is God shaping you? Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands. How is God shaping you? There's an old hymn that says, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. You know, E.J. Vu often uh, plays keyboard with our praise team. About a month ago, E.J. and her husband Tony celebrated the birth of their daughter Esther. And I had really hoped that uh, E.J. would be able to be here because she is an excellent sculptor. She does beautiful, beautiful work. She's also a talented artist. The, the large framed picture that's in our lobby is, is by E.J. Super talented, super talented. And those, since she couldn't be here today, hopefully they'll be here next week. Since she couldn't be here today, I interviewed her on the phone about sculpting. And E.J. often works with her pottery wheel. And I ask her, what's the most difficult or the most important part of sculpting? And she replied real quickly with two words, finding center. Oh, that'll preach. <laughs> finding center. And then she said, if the clay is not centered on the wheel, it will become too wobbly as the wheel spins. Could we not say of the nation of Israel that they had lost their center? Could we not say that Israel had gone completely away from the center with God at the center of their lives? They had rejected God, the master sculptor, and consequently their lives were totally out of center. And is that not also true of us if we're not careful? The reason that some people seem to be able to handle their worlds spinning crazily and others come apart and collapse is really a difference between whether they are centered or not. And sometimes I don't know whether I'm well-centered until some of the spinning starts and some of the pressure begins. When the wheel is still, I can't really tell. Am I centered? But add a little stress, add a little turning, add a little churning, and all of a sudden, those little things that didn't really matter that much, I am so out of balance. And that's what God is saying here. Go to the potter, watch what he's doing. Did you see that, Jeremiah? That's what, that's what I want you to be able to tell Israel. And, and folks, that's what God is telling us. God is saying, I need to be the center of your life. So how was Jeremiah able to withstand the rejection and the persecution? Well, he remained centered in God's will. He remembered what God had said when he called him. Remember back in chapter 1? God said, and I love this, and I missed it the first time, before I, and he uses the word, formed you. Before I formed you. 
That's the work of the potter. That's the work of the master sculptor. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Do not be afraid of them, he said, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And then in verses 8 and 9, then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. He touched him. I just wonder what that felt like for the hand of God to touch his lips and say, the reason I'm touching your lips is I'm putting my words in you so that you will speak my words from now on. The Apostle Paul reminded the Christians in Rome of the same truth in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, I asked EJ about the clay that she uses. And she said she can make different types of objects from the same clay. The beauty of this sculpture, of the sculptured piece, is not determined by the clay, but by the skill of the sculptor. It's God who is at work. And did you notice the incongruity in Paul's voice there in Romans 9? Shall what is formed say to the one that formed it, Why did you make me this way? Ooh, have you ever said that? Have you ever used that tone with God? God, why are you? We may we may trail off. We may not finish the sentence. And Paul says that's it's really incongruous to act that way. Because why would that which is formed say to the one who formed it? We must understand that the clay pot out in the garden does not complain that it's not a vase on the mantle, nor should we. The same truth is borne out in Paul's discussion with the Corinthians about spiritual gifts, and he used the analogy of different parts of the body. And we don't say, because I'm not this and I want to be that. God has formed us. Now, EJ said that it's equally important part of sculpting is being able to apply the right amount of pressure to shape the piece. Well-centered clay is useless unless it's shaped by the potter's hand. That shaping involves pressure. EJ talked about having to squeeze the clay and stretch the clay and mold the clay. Do you remember God's question in verse 6? O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? EJ said also, before the piece is completed, it must also be placed in a kiln and fired. It has to go through the heat, not only once, but twice. Without going through the fire, the piece will have no lasting strength. It will have no lasting usefulness. The beauty of the glaze and the coloring happen only in the firing process. Can you see how this applies to our lives? In the midst of the pressure we're going through and the heat of the stress of what's going on, that is the time that God builds our strength. That is the time that God reveals the glory of His creation. 
That's when the beauty is revealed. So let's focus again on the picture on the screen. How is God touching you today? How is God touching you? Are you willing to endure the centering, the spinning, the pressure, the heat of the shaping so that you can become a vessel of God's own choosing? In Romans 12, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's where the pressure is applied. So today, I'm going to ask you to begin to pray. And does today need to be a day of repentance? Are you ready to say, have thine own way, Lord. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Are you willing to surrender to him? Are you willing to say, Lord, shape me in such a way that I am centered solely on you? Lord, as my world spins, may I remain centered in you And as the pressure is applied in my life, may I see it as you working to bring about your beauty and your glory in me and through me. God, make me useful to you. Please don't be like the rebellious Israel, doomed to slavery. Don't shoot the messenger. Please realize that the real messenger real messenger is the Holy Spirit and he is the one who is speaking to you right now. He is the one who is saying, I want to shape you. I want to form you and mold you. I want to make you the beautiful object that I have in mind for you. Father, I pray that today we will understand with a fresh perspective what it means to be touched by you. Father, may we not seek the touches of the pat on the back. May we seek the touch that that turns us, that holds us, that directs us. May we allow the pressure that is within us and on us to be the instrument that you use to shape us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.